do we own up to the fact that we don't have a name yet? I think no. I think what we should do is just leave a pregnant pause in the middle, uh, into which we can just insert whatever the fuck we want. So the problem is, like, hello and welcome to blah is a, like, quite conventional way to introduce yourself when you're introducing blah. <laughs> Stan ontology. <laughs> uh... Have we actually tried to come up with a name for this? No, we've actively avoided it, like the plague, because I think both of us deep down knew it would end up looking something like this. Just, it's not, we didn't, we didn't choose it so much as we resigned ourselves to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly how it works. That is the story of our name. Welcome to the zeroth episode of Stan Ontology, a name that we submitted to rather than came up with. You don't, you don't choose the pod life. The pod life chooses you. Oh no. Oh no. Who the hell are you? Uh, <laughs> wait, was that, that is that the start of the podcast? <laughs> Could be. I was just going to tell the story of how I kicked a piano and lost. I mean, that was just a, that's just a very good line. I well, I have this whole build up and this whole life story thing that I like to do before I get to that part. But yeah, so <laughs> I'm Claudia. I use she/her pronouns, uh, and I listen to too much cable. Hey, I'm Michael, or Regs. I use they-them pronouns, and oddly enough, I also listen to way too much K-pop. And uh, we have decided to address this problem of ours by overanalyzing all the K-pop we listen to. It's an excuse to not over-listen to all the K-pop and just over-listen to a few specific tracks in a way that may like diminish our pleasure over time, but for now at least, it's providing a very valuable service to us. Yeah, got a valid excuse to listen to G on a loop for three straight hours. It's important to do that sometimes in your it life. It is very it's... important to do that. Um, so, yeah, why should anyone care about who the fuck we are and what we have to say? Well, you, you see, like every dutiful Asian child, I did mandatory piano lessons. You know, I did my scales. I did all my theory. I did. I was trained to really be a human piano role, um, but I had a lot of feelings about it. So I once decided to fight the piano, and I lost. I kicked it, it hurt me back, and I've never looked at it again. And clearly this is all the musical training you need. <laughs> uh, clearly physical damage is the, um, the prerequisite we all need to have a well-adjusted attitude to pop music in our later lives. Frankly, given the number of K-pop videos in which they trash pianos, I think I have a connection. Oh, entirely. It's it's a deeply spiritual connection to oh, yes. to the, the aesthetic world we're inhabiting. Um, yeah, my I haven't fought a piano yet. I definitely have had fights about pianos, though. I not. I have very vivid memories of my sister getting piano lessons um, when she was about twelve and I was about six, 
and I very definitely had lots of hissy fits and cajoled my parents into getting me taught piano. So yeah, I learned jazz piano. Then I did a lot of singing in sort of professional working kids choirs and learned cello as well and did classical singing. And then I picked up music production on the way. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, not a vast amount of formal high level like taught stuff because it was jazz piano and that's a sort of bullshit excuse way of never having to actually do your theory mm. but also means i like pop music more than most people who get a classical training i guess yeah i mean speaking of that classical training i gotta be in my music theory class and that's definitely a passing grade I don't think I ever got good grades in music theory because it was always the thing you had to do to keep going with the other fun stuff. So, mm, you know, that makes sense. I've definitely spent a lot of time brushing up on that stuff as I've got into composition and production of my own, though. So that will be a, a fun thing to chuck in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, because K-pop is very much about performance, I've done two whole months of dancing. With like a real teacher and everything, and then I stopped. I th I th you, you're two months up on me. Um, people do generally compliment my dancing when I dance in clubs, but also I I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just sort of moving my arms around. Um, it's very flattering, but it is very much just me moving my arms around. So clearly, we are highly qualified experts. In entirely. What what else do you need in order to be able to critique? What else do you? Need? A complete audiovisual medium. Yeah. I mean, slightly more seriously, this is like pop and learning to uh, appreciate pop was sort of a rehabilitation of my relationship to music because I hated it. As, you know, aforementioned piano kicking anecdote will tell you, I did not appreciate it. I did not. And that kind of like tainted my relationship to music. And funnily enough, the first few times I listened to K-pop when it was blaring out of malls at me. I did not like it. So this is as much for me a, a way of getting past that dark chapter of my life uh, as it is for me to like celebrate this thing that I love to experience now. It's very fair. I have to say for me, it comes from a slightly different direction in that I've spent a lot of time both in art music-y spaces and in dance music spaces, which are both different ways of finding very selective, very uh, self-selecting cohorts of people and scenes to like think really hard about and invest yourself really deeply in. And it's been really rewarding to be able to do that in a space that's so full of disposable, consumable trash. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, both the art of taking in inverted commas, low culture or trash pop culture really seriously and find what's wondrous and enjoyable and fun about it is really great when I spend so much time doing that about in inverted commas, high culture anyway. Yeah, what is the point of all these fancy degrees if I cannot apply it to pop trash? Indeed, indeed. And I say this with affection. I do say this with deep affection for pop trash. So... When did you start listening to K-pop? Seriously. Like, when was, what was your hook? My hook, um, I can t definitely p uh, pick out the first release that I remember catching as it was happening, 
which was Temin's first solo release. Temin being the youngest member of the large and very well-established boy group called Shiny. Mm-hmm. And he um, came out with his first solo album in 2014, which is, it feels like a very long time ago. Uh, that's, it feels like approximately a century ago, yes. You, you remember five years ago? That was a whole century ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I definitely wasn't hooked into K-pop as an entirety, like as a as a, like a collected body of work or anything yet. But it very much was the hook that showed me that there was something compelling and unique. Not so much that like there are some individual tracks that are cool and very well composed, and then I can go back to listen to my other stuff. But um, but that there was something unique going on in K-pop that I wouldn't get anywhere else, and that even if I didn't like get completely hooked to the point of like small obsession bordering on like uh, <laughs> genuine standing of my own mm-hmm. until maybe 2017. Mm-hmm. It definitely like instilled an appreciation of it that didn't like ever leave me in the intervening time. So yeah, mm-hmm. Temin's first release, 2014. <laughs> Mine was a lot more. So as I said, I I I grew up in Hong Kong, so I grew up in a place where, you know, when that Hallyu wave was hitting Asia hard, like I was actually, you know what, more or less the right demographic, like more or less the right age at that time uh, to listen to all these. And I have a lot of friends who, you know, remember, uh, you know, like I remember friends who got deep into SNSD, like deep, like well into SNSD stand culture before I knew that that was what it was called. Uh, I did not. I bounced hard off it. The one thing that managed to catch me was somebody posting, what a coincidence, also Timmins' first solo release, uh, one of the stages, so one of the live performances he did uh, for TV broadcast of, I think it was Pretty Boy, actually, with Kai, with the caption, Aesthetic Goals. And I'd never actually really seen it. Uh, I'd never actually really listened to a K-pop track with the watching the choreography rather than the music video, which if you cast your minds back to the uh, uh, late noughties, early teens kind of mess, the hot mess period of K-pop, you will remember those MVs. And I love them dearly, but they were strange. And that's like the kindest thing I can say about them. <laughs> they were so strange. Everyone had wings. Um, and it was terrible CG. But this was the first time I'd actually watched the performance. And that, on top of the music, was what made it click for me. Like, something in my head just went, oh, this is... This is different. 
articulating the different part. So just to be clear, we completely independently arrived at rediscovering K-pop, or in my case, discovering it for the first time in a meaningful way. In 2014, because of the same solo release by the same artist who we both stan, who comes from a larger group that we both effectively stan by this point, Yes. Uh, like blame Damon. Yeah, this really is was this was never supposed to be a, a shiny stand podcast, but it might effectively become that by the time we get to the end of this. Oh god. It's okay, we still have time to rename this podcast Stan Timon. <laughs> uh or just Temin Ontology. Hmm. It's just going to be those three words, we're going to put them in a wheel, and we're just going to flip them every single episode. Yeah, no, that's entirely fair. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not like it means anything when you say it a different way, does it? Stan Timmin, Timmin Stan, Timmin Ontology, Stan Ontology. All of them. All of them incredibly important. Um, so we're the, the so song- bad at names. We're so bad at names, but it's fine because... (laughs) It's fine because you have seen what K-pop fan groups are called. It's okay. (laughs) It's fine. Alrighty. So the other thing I put as a very late addition to this introductory spiel was... uh, I mean, we should probably fess up at this point. My actual, like, so I'm a rehabilitated academic, and so I used to, I came out of, like, film and video game studies, so, like, pinning media to a board and just kind of, like, picking it apart is, is, is my hobby, and also my job, because it's 2019, and no one has a healthy work-life balance. (laughs) So that's what we're calling it, professional academia nowadays. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. And so you may or may not have guessed because we were the kind of goofuses who laugh at the terms, at the word stan ontology. Uh, we should probably talk about, we should probably define some um, basic kind of terms that we're going to be using a lot uh, in case people listening aren't, were not also forced to take music lessons. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I'll fess up myself to being an aspiring PhD student in philosophy, which doesn't mean I'm quite as used to pinning things on a board, but I've been on the internet for the last two decades. That's a thing that people do. It's a thing that I'm very much in the habit of. Um, And I still am just as fond of a good, long, overly overly conceptually um, laden word. 
Um, but yeah, so a, a basic basic level, we sort of got to talk about how pop songs work, which is yeah. yeah. So um, the basic idea is all all K-pop songs start off with some humans who are members of a group, unless you've got a solo artist, in which case it's one person. But um, broadly what we're talking about is groups because groups are the thing that are interesting that enable for like unique interpersonal dynamics and they generally are the things that blow up to the stratospheric heights of pop cultural relevance. And oh, we are going to get there. (laughs) Um, Group members sing or rap over instrumentals. Um, They also generally perform and K-pop is marked out by its very important synthesis of like, well, dance performance as well as musical performance, turning it into a sort of combined visual and audio medium. And those kind of uh, band, uh, these kind of band members having concrete defined roles, or at least marketed as having particular roles that they fit into within the group, which might, uh, as Reg said, like sometimes is based on their musical or performing abilities but sometimes can be kind of age-based because uh, there is sort of a social age-based hierarchy and so knowing who the oldest and the youngest person of any given group is fairly important and that may or may not come up in the future i'm sure it will um it will yes all of this stuff is important because the the bare bones of how k-pop groups work and how they're marketed to people sort of sets the tone for the sort of kinds of emotional interactions that people get out of them the sorts of terms in which you engage with them as Mm -hmm. like humans but also as like objects in media um and then the basic idea is if you're familiar with western pop music you should be pretty familiar with most of the sort of scaffolding in in like musical terms for what k-pop is trying to do um yeah broadly you get pop music song structures which means um, verses and choruses and, usually, and maybe sometimes cool build-ups and breakdowns and a bridge to, to add new material and interest to the second half of the song. And what we'll end up finding is that K-pop is a very both liberal attitude to like stealing formalism from other kinds of genres and also um, because there's so much time and money invested into the songwriting process that it gets remarkably adventurous in the way it takes both the song form structure and approaches to um uh to like sound and sound design very very adventurously yeah but i mean we can say that like the the there's sort of a foundational dna of a pop song and it's verses interspersed with choruses that then has a bridge in the middle, which probably sounds a little bit different, like, or dr- drastically different in the case of K-pop, to <laughs> whatever the verses and choruses sound like, and then back to often a final verse or chorus section. Um, I think, like, it's also fair to say that, like, these days, a pop song, you know, is not going to be just singing. There are often rap sections. Uh, in K-pop, if the verses are raps, you're probably going to have a vocally, like, you know, you're going to have, like, a melodic bridge you know something to break it up or vice versa if your verses are mostly sung you're gonna have a rap bit in the middle i am air quoting yeah no it, it totally works because 
the the whole point is every member in the group needs to get shut out at some point you gotta find ways to make everyone in your group similarly marketable and similarly exciting and potentially the the greatest obsession of the target demographic audience member um and the way you do that is by sharing out the spotlight by sharing out the responsibility and by um varying it so that uh, both everyone can like find us like everyone can find songs that they fall in love with and will will listen to on repeat for days on end but also that there are moments of them where they get particular gratification Mm. from the from the presence or like the the highlighting of the things that they care about which might be i've got a member who's my um and now we get into fandom terminology bias bias being the term generally reserved for the member of a group that fans will um latch onto as their particular favorite who they will promote over the others or preferentially to the others when we're talking about like public events or popularity polls or um, collectibles or indeed collectibles um of course yeah you gotta buy the album goodie specific to your particular bias um Mm -hmm. and with that comes the idea of a stan, a stan in the first place. The stan being the sort of archetypical um, crazed, obsessive fan coming straight from the Eminem track of the same name. Mm-hmm. Stalker fan. Indeed. That's where it comes. Yeah, stalker <laughs> fan is stan. And now it's just kind of a fan plus. It's a, It's just a word we use and we like it's a verb as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Stan ontology. You stan ontology mm-hmm. or you stan Luna, as the case may be. Um, it's a, a stan culture is a whole sort of series of like collective practices where people get together to, to like celebrate and support the groups they love in ways that fit in within the like market of K-pop groups and the competitions that they go through, whether that's voting for them in awards shows, voting for them in the weekly music shows that uh, that Korean TV has. Pushing up views on places like YouTube. Yeah, uh, not when we say pushing up, that literally means streaming and setting up automated systems to ensure that maximal views are obtained in the shortest amount of time possible. Um, Social media promoing. Which, to be clear, this is not unique to K-pop. Oh, not at all. Yeah, like, I feel like this is the important line in the sand to draw here. Like, a lot of what we're talking is, you know, quite broadly applicable to pop at this point. We're not being K-pop specific um, at all when we're talking about... Well, okay, a little bit in terms of, like, band roles, but in terms of fan culture, like, there are aspects of that that are not just a K-pop thing or just a K-fandom thing. And there's definitely been a, a level of feedback between Western and East, and well, Eastern broadly, or K-pop specifically fandom, in that like the tone of Justin Bieber fandom has changed over time, as Justin Bieber as an artist has changed from what looked a lot more like stan culture to like pop appreciation on a mass scale. Um, mm-hmm. Same with someone like uh, same with a group like One Direction or Fifth Harmony. Um, that the nature of um, what support and fandom changes as the marketing and the strategy and the target of the the groups in question change. At the same time, I think K-pop and particularly K-pop sort of most recent wave of explosion in Western like pop media 
has like kicked off a new wave of like stan culture like becoming established as a normal thing within western media more broadly mm-hmm. i think you we also see shades of it in um tv fandom and the sort of fan cultures that have revolved around other co- kinds of media like comics too and that's a bit bigger and a bit harder to talk about in a in a simple sense <laughs> but like yeah no like in there are obviously fanboys and fangirls of all stripes for all kinds of media um all of which has led to this particular moment where fandom is hyper competitive and um hyper intense in a way that you might not be expecting or usually exposed to in western pop music yeah let's do a big old 180 let's do a big old 180 180 and the question is what is a chord (laughs) <laughs> technical or, defini- or rather uh, I'll, we'll, we'll get into that but I kind of want to preface it by saying you know when we're talking about and we're going to get into like what makes the song good you know we can talk ages about and I think we will talk a long time about like why is it so- why is the song good well maybe it's something to do with what it's talking about maybe it's something to do with when it was released you know what is it saying about pop what is it saying about music what is it saying about the industry but also you can get you know uh real fine-grained and start going well structurally these are some things that are that it's doing that it's interesting and i'm gonna go out on a limb and say you can very 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 broadly bucket out what a song into what is it doing that's interesting in terms of its sound right it's uh, melodies, it's harmonies, it's chords, it's instrumentation, i.e. literally, what is that sound and what's making it? And you can talk about it in terms of like, what's the beat? What's the rhythm? What's making that beat? And how is it sustained or how is it changed or how is it tweaked from what you might expect? So that's my preamble. Rex, what is a chord? A chord is a collection of multiple notes most commonly three or more that mm-hmm. are felt as a common harmonic unit and that are specifically understood in terms of the relationships between the notes in question so that um you pick three notes you play them together you hear them as one object and you understand them and, and it sound good and you feel things based on the relationships between the notes And chords are essentially the basis for the way we analyze harmony, which is the sort of progression and use of chords or different melodic lines or different bits of musical information to juxtapose with each other, to bounce off each other in ways that will sound good. Um... Melodies then are just the the sort of single lines, usually on single instruments or in single voices, that progress over time and outline phrases. That yeah, it's the thing you hum. It's the thing you hum. Um, hey, I just met you, and this is crazy, but here's my number, so call me maybe. There are lots of them in K-pop. There are lots of them in K-pop, and they're incredibly catchy. And the ways that oh, so people. Good the ways that people deploy 
melody and harmony in clever, subtle, but also incredibly impactful ways is like front and center in why K-pop is genuinely quite different to what Western pop music has done historically. My, my, my fun nutshell version of this is the melody is the thing you hum. The harmony is the thing that makes you feel a certain way about the song. Yeah, no, I think that's entirely appropriate to put it in those terms because without harmony, you don't get a sense of the tone of the thing. You don't get a sense of the direction and the uh, like emotional space of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Alongside that, you just you need a rhythm too. All of the, all of the songs in K-pop are pop songs. They have generally strongish beats. They're, they are pop songs that are meant to be danced to. Yeah, they are... By and large. They're for like, public consumption in public spaces as well as private listening. You're very much encouraged to like enjoy yourself as much as it might diverge from what we might orth- uh, orthogonally call dance music. K-pop very much is stuff that gets played in clubs and needs to be danceable and impactful as well as like hooky and interesting. Yeah, like it might not be dance music it is music you can dance to indeed and also like because the visual component of it requires dance in it um Mm -hmm. that there is just an expectation that whatever the music is it's got to be danceable and of course some k-pop groups will push the boundaries of what's possible with limited to no beat or rhythm possible uh in evidence but having a beat is generally a pretty good thing to dance to so how do you talk about a beat? What's a BPM? How do you talk about a beat? Um, st- we'll start off with a tempo. A tempo is how fast a thing is going, and that's um, that's denoted in terms of beats per minute. Um, that's how frequently you're um, you're hitting one of those beats. Um, yeah. Average tempos might be in that sort of 120 area. Very fast mm-hmm. stuff might hit 160, 180 if we're feeling like out there. Um, and then if we're in R&B territory or if we're in slow jam territory, we might drop it to 100 or maybe even slightly lower. Um, As just a fun point of comparison, Google tells me, Normal resting heart rate for adults over 10 is about 60 to 100 BPM. Yeah, um, there's no surprise that people find like comfortable middle ground, easygoing music to be around that like very natural human uh, human body rhythm. And that like <laughs> the, the faster you pick it up, the more intensity you pick up, um, as well as the... Um, the more opportunity for like really athletic dancing and that that's something that marks out some groups is like dancing that fits with dance music genre just as much as it does within a uh, a pop music rubric um mm-hmm. complicating what the beat is is whatever the rhythms you're getting mapped out by both melodic parts but also percussion parts um you're generally going to find kicks and snares like you will on any pop uh, pop genre um and whatever patterns they punch out will maybe be directly on the beat, then maybe be counter to the beat in interesting ways. I think broadly in K-pop, it's pretty conventional, and we'll spend a lot of time listening to tracks that just have kicks and kicks on the ones and um, snares every second beat, and that's just fine. Yeah. 
but we'll also find moments where things go really off the rails and it's going to be very fun to talk about when we find things that go start stealing um uh rhythmic patterns from trap music start stealing from hip-hop start stealing Mm -hmm. it from jazz and r&b start stealing it from genre dance music and figure out all the ways in which you can um create different sorts of energy through like mm-hmm. borrowing patternings and tropes from other genres of music i mean because ultimately that's what it all comes down to right like we are talking about these very formal things right we're talking about structure and we're talking about chords and we're talking about rhythms but ultimately they're all coming back in service of a particular feeling a particular mood right yeah uh some kind of emotional connection between the person listening and this song and that's what all of these words are really in the service of, right? To be able to say, this is good, and this is precisely why it's good, and this is what it makes me feel, and this is how it's making me feel that way. That's the point of this project. Exactly. We gotta, if we're doing our jobs okay, if what we're talking about, the sort of technical detailings, actually help explain and sort of develop an understanding of why a thing works and why a thing might be compelling, why it might make you feel a certain way, why it might work its way into your head and stay there, why it might um, uh, like sound intriguing on its own terms. Yeah, so like, I would say my goal in doing this is to be able to say, hey, even if you don't like K-pop, or if, even if you don't like this particular song, hopefully we can explain to you why it's at least interesting why it's worth listening to even if it's not going to go on your playlist anytime soon hey this was an interesting song and it did some interesting things and hey maybe that will help you to articulate why you love the songs that you do totally and i think for me my my slightly altered version of that for myself is i'm trying to highlight where the work has gone in the work needs to go in to make complex things sound effortless and to make simple things sound catchy and that those are distinct but very sympathetically aligned and very like difficult tasks to accomplish when making pop music that for something to be compelling and exciting to listen to it's got to have a balance between the sort of heavy lifting of there are things that i find really compelling and exciting about the thing i'm listening to and then also masking that with the aesthetic trappings that you've got to hand or the um the the sort of constraints of um, a pop form that don't allow you to just completely break the rules in service of whatever tonality or aesthetic that you've you've picked so yeah work needs to be done someone's got to sit in a room and figure out how do we map this um map this musical idea into something that's danceable or how do we map it into something that um encounters a bit of complexity in a way that will keep interest over the three four minutes of a of a runtime mm-hmm. which is a lovely segue into g it really is because Isn't it? we wanted to talk about uh g by girls generation given it is a sort of totemic track in the history of k-pop
the songs that was coming at me from all corners of the city. It was on the radio. It was in every shopping mall. Uh, you know, you would walk past a crappy little diner, and that's what would be on the radio. It was everywhere. It would be in karaoke machines, uh, which, I mean, obviously, no one can sing it, but everyone can do the chorus. And that's what everyone was doing. And as I mentioned in the intro, app, I did not like it. <laughs> So really, this is an opportunity for older me to show teenage me where she was very wrong. Yeah, no, it's incredibly fair. So just as a, oh. as a, um, as a sort of a ballpark figure, I had a quick look into the sorts of sales that SNSD got, and how that compared to equivalent stuff at the time. So G as an album sold somewhere in the region of six million copies in the sort of like year or so that it um got released that's a very similar number to the biggest single in the u.s at the time which was black eyed pieces i got a feeling so just Mm -hmm. to put this in people's heads is where we sort of are in time and in scale careers also i got a feeling is the western version of yeah success the i got a feeling with as utterly um like ubiquitous as that was is the sort of level in raw sales you need to get to be equivalent to G. But G was also released in a country of about 40 million people, whereas the US is like more than six times as populous. So in terms of the density, in terms of the um, the the like sheer like concentration of attention that pop music gets in Korea, it's maybe not orders of magnitude, but it's certainly like a significant scale more intense than it is in the US. And the sales reflect that because there are massive worldwide worldwide sales of this track at a uh, at a scale. Right, because it doesn't stay in Korea. No. It, it goes to Japan, it goes to China, it goes to Hong Kong, it goes all over Asia. Um, and I can say that one million sales in Japan in the year is... Um, is similarly huge in terms of a, a foreign track. So yeah, this is a track that essentially like... Oh, it dominated. Yeah, the, you can tell exactly how... You can tell people exactly how ubiquitous and overwhelming this this would have been at the time. Everywhere. <laughs> and, and it was, because it's a damn good song. Like, it, it is the most... And the big reason why we chose it like a it's kind of a landmark song just because it was so successful uh but also because it sounds like the most simple saccharine stereotypical bright pink pop song right like every stereotype about a pop song that it's you know just all about like crushes and it's all bubblegum pink and it's all super upbeat and super, I don't want to say shallow, but it a little bit. I think we're allowed to say that the allegation is a track like G is shallow. And our, our jobs aren't to like critique the idea that G is shallow. G sounds like what it does to people. And if people perceive it to be shallow, then that's exactly what they feel. I think our jobs is to say like how much work goes into making something that's this that's combination of catchy, but also flippant or catchy but um like a weightless in a sense Mm, that's a good way to put it 
yeah, that there is um there's an effortlessness that's belied by the amount of like songwriting heavy machinery that's under uh, like working underneath the surface. Yeah, yeah, it takes a lot of effort to seem this effortless. Exactly. Uh, it's very hard to make a kind of weightless sound. Um, it is very difficult to produce something that is shallow but not actually dull. Yeah, that's which exactly I think is, the thing. is the point of G. That's exactly the thing. Right. So it feels, you know, this is just free word association. How does G feel, right? Like it feels bright. It feels fluttery. It's bubbly. It has this propulsive energy that it's always it always feels like it's moving forward and it always feels like it's energetic but it's it's kind of a little fragile at the same yeah, time yeah it, it tumbles over itself in a in a really like energetic but um how can you put it um it sweeps you yeah up. it sweeps you up in its current it's frantic maybe like it's it's a it trips over its own feet somehow um and i i think this sort of strikes mm-hmm. it like this song is about the feeling of having a crush. This song is a, a song about that sort of like rush of giddy energy that you get um, with something that's like new and sensational. And the, to, to capture the feeling, capture the moment, both in the, the very explicit sense, but also in the, in the like implicit sensation of what the track is just like, like as it rattles through your ears and into your brain is yeah it's pretty remarkable. none of us i don't think yeah yeah none of us are gonna go to bat and try to claim that g lyrically is saying anything in any way shape or form deep and or profound about first love but its staggering achievement is communicating the feeling of first love in uh in sonic form as a sound I am listening to it right now. I'm turning it on for myself. Oh, yes. <sighs> this is a song where I looped it for myself for three hours, and I messaged Rex going, I have the musical equivalent of a sugar rush going right now. Um, and then you didn't help because you just gave me more songs like this. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, this is what happens when we start talking about K-pop together, is we send each other K-pop it's songs. Terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now that I'm starting to listen to it, where do you want to come come at it first? Like, so yeah, I think for me, the thing that marks it out is pretty unique. Um, in terms of, there are two things that stand out. The first is the tempo. The tempo is 200 BPM. And having said that standard pop music is in that sort of 120, maybe 130 BPM range. Saying a track is 200 right. BPM should... Slightly above human resting. Uh, yeah. Um, it's like light jog slash dancing. Yeah, where it, beats whereas minute. this is... You'd struggle to... Um, if you are, like... I like how I've turned this into, like, a, we are going to compare song BPMs to human heart rates now. Yeah, no, like, this is the equivalent of, um, a, sort of a frantic sprint, basically. Like... It's very hard to dance to this effectively. It's very hard to dance to this gracefully, I'll put it that way. You've basically got to be jumping. You would have to start skipping Yeah, you're you're jumping, you're skipping, you're like bouncing rather than like dancing without any sense of fluidity. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll come back to exactly how um, um, 
how it utilizes rhythm. But I just wanted to put the um the just like the sheer absurdity of how fast this track is on the table because it sort of sets uh sort of sets up like everything it's doing is doing with minimal amounts of time. Um, it's doing with like. A, a real inability to make things sound distinct and separated because it's just so fast things all smush together in time but i, I sort of wanted mm-hmm. out on the table before you like pushed into talking about the rest of the track and i think for me yeah the thing that slaps you around the face like a wet fish is the the, the sound world of it um the sound design is i'd say absurd basically by most standards it is it's bendy and bright and plastic in ways that I think we're very unused to nowadays. Um, people might say trashy. I think we're very used to uh, sound design and Western pop music having become very slick over the last few years, especially as like mm-hmm. electronic music and dance music forms have like pushed us to become more slick. But um, yeah, this is from an era of like late 90s through naughty synthesis which wasn't particularly subtle and that if you just did it in these particular wonky and like uh like cheeky bright ways could come up with some deeply alien sounds that still managed to do a lot of work conveying this like other like (laughs) i'm almost going into the sort of like otherworldly territory like it's genuinely um kind of unnerving how bright and fluttery then and and, like bubbly the sound of the, the track is and it and you know it helps that the instrumentation the sounds it's using are they're they're very obviously not trying for anything naturalistic at all oh so i think right. you get it in the um in the the intro to the song you have the, mm-hmm. all the synths pretty much exposed to, uh, to just be able to hear and what you find very consistently is this um sort of ducking effect where every time a synth gets hit, you get a sort of second burst of noise just after after it that um opens like like yeah, it's one of those things that's hard to describe, and if we play it, you will get it immediately. <laughs> Every synth introduces itself with doo doo. It's not just one. It's not just one doo. Sounds it's squelch and expand and open up in ways that make sure that you get two distinct like beats from it. One sort of tight and and punchy, and the other like explosive and like expanding out from it. Mm-hmm. And the, all these sounds have this very characteristic swoop or squelch to them. Um, uh, the you get the same thing later when you start getting to the verse proper um, with the um, backing synths that um, arpeggio up and down the thing um, where you get very like dramatic sweeps from high to low across the um, across the sound register as synths either like like tumble around um, in the very high register or they're like bouncing up octaves up and down octaves in the sort of mid register as a counterpoint to the to the vocal line um it this is a track that's all like about wanna, that bounce. you want to talk about the tr- right that track being energetic and bouncy and that's also exactly what the sounds are doing they're climbing up and down all over the walls yep as the song goes 
and you like I I feel like we're we're describing the song a lot in terms of movement because it's so hard not to. Yeah, no, very much so. Um, this is a track that's all about motion. There is almost nothing in the track that is static. It is like propulsive in that sense, and um, sort of the we we've talked uh, about the the sort of like double beat thing. Um, you get the um, the constant repetition between the words. And that a lot of those words are onomatopoeic, right? Which is words that sound like sounds. Um, yeah, so it's the baby itself, which sort of becomes a sort of rhythmic component of the track with a sort of like repeated refrain all the way through it. And then using words mm-hmm. like Dugan Dugan over and over again as like sort of right. the, the... Your heart doesn't just go thump thump, it goes Dugan Dugan. Which is just a cooler noise to make. It's definitely a cooler noise to make. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Korean has a leg up on English there. It's got the better on a map here. But yeah, it's another one of those things where it's exploiting all the facts that it's got all these weird sort of like back and forth, um, back and forth motions to go through with the the sounds, the sounds and the words, and in the. Um, and it's mirroring that in the sound design, where the sound design and the, the writing and the, the synth parts themselves are sucking backwards and forwards. They're bouncing up and down, both in counterpoint mm-hmm. to each other, but also like making sure that everything in the track is pulsing back and forth constantly. There is no, there is no bit of the track you can listen to and hear static, uh, static and continuous noise. Yeah. Uh, like even in the even in the vocal line, right? Every time. Those lines come in like interruptions. They come in, they have this breathless quality. And I don't mean that in terms of like a breathy singing style. I mean that the way, you don't have to understand Korean to feel the impact of those words at all. You, everybody, and I will cop to not knowing the SNSD members well enough to (laughs) say precisely who's singing what when. Um like again for a certain other boy group <laughs> but this is this is just a factor of listening too much to one group but um you know they are their lines and and again this is partly a k-pop thing right where you rarely have a single person taking a whole verse uh even for the uh what what the position of let's say main vocal the person who's expected to do a lot of the vocal heavy lifting are usually there for the big marquee, like the high notes, the long sustained notes, stuff like that. But stuff like verses and choruses are going to be taken by multiple members and not the same ones, right? They're going to be different people depending on the verse. And so they kind of cut in and out of each other. But in the song, in G specifically, they're kind of interrupting each other to add on top of each other's verses, right? It's like that thing of where, imagine you had a group of people, a group of friends, you're really excitedly talking about someone's crush, and you're just all interrupting to add to each other, right? And that helps build that kind of sense of propulsion, that it builds that energy. It's very rare in K-pop that they make it explicit that there's more than one melody line going on at any one time. Like, usually the objective of the sort of, like, 
harmonious ensemble of a of a vocal group is to be able to trade parts off between each other without really noticing the seams between the vocalists. Mm-hmm. Um, G just throws that out the window by saying, right, there are multiple people singing counterpoint at each other, like almost in a dialogue and almost in that sort of like Greek chorus effect. Yeah, at this point, we should have mentioned SNSD has nine people yeah, in it. It's, there are nine women It's a nine-member group. group where they're happily... Um, like trading off between each other in a sort of conversational way, in a way that might work in the um, in the context of a musical or something like that, where people are ascribed parts and they're they're bouncing their own ideas back and forth with each other. And part of the phenomenon is that you get to to learn individual voices by the fact that they take on roles within the conversation, but also in the fact that there's a conversation at all, which is pretty remarkable for a for a for a, a song to try and insert that kind of depth. Um, where usually you'd expect right. it to um, try and hide the fact that there are differentiation, there's any differentiation whatsoever. Yeah, you want to call this low com- lowest common denominator music, but it's it's doing some very complicated things. And then you remember exactly how many times it's sold. Uh, yeah. Because it works. <laughs> it works real well. Yeah. Oh. Um, All right, I think we've we've avoided it long enough. You want to talk about either the harmonies it's using or the the that rhythm i think let's go let's go mm. for the rhythm first because that's the that's the hook the hook is g g g g baby 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 which is one of the it's it's irrepressibly good it's incredibly simple and it um and it uh it's it just trades off like stabbing on the beat for a sort of beautifully syncopated uh, baby when it's sung in the way it is uh, is syncopated in a way that like um, that I, I sort of think of it as a sort of like up and down that the phrase has got a sort of V shape that like G G G G is like a blast outwards and that baby 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 has got a, it's got a sort of suction to it that it pulls you back in towards the beat and uh, again, that yeah. just as within the within the the words itself, it's got the sort of back and forth effect that I th- feel that phrase does as well. That whenever it gets repeated, you like blast outwards and then get pulled back into the beat. on syncopation syncopation is deeply satisfying i think it is the reason for the enduring popularity of shaving a haircut two bits <laughs> as a knock yeah we got that there in. you go <laughs> um but yeah it's um it's it's entirely the case that this is a track that uses syncopation incredibly sparingly almost everything in this track is dead on the beat and when it isn't, it's because it's got to peel away for like dramatic repetitions or um, impactful moments. And the, ba- the baby in that hook absolutely is one of it. Oh, I- I'm sorry. I think you mean ba- 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 baby. Yeah, that. It just sounds better when you say it. God, yeah. Uh, which is great. It is a catchy pop song with a uh, an excellent kind of harmony accident melody but the bit you belt is rhythm which is secretly fantastic because it doesn't matter whether or not you're on tune really like it doesn't really matter if you you're in the right key or you're flat or you're sharp or whatever if you can hit that beat and that's i think an easier thing to do especially when like 
G, 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 G sets you up to be on that beat. And then you just mess it all up with beep, 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 beep. Exactly. It's, it's fun. It's so fun. That's why I keep doing it's it. It's so good. Um, I've been whispering it under my breath every time it comes around while I'm listening. <laughs> it's incredibly appropriate. Um, it's so good. But yeah, the I, I, I've also got the 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 memory in my head of trying to watch live performance of this and realizing SNSD's fan group, uh, like their fan base, is significantly older and significantly more male than most fan groups, which means that you basically hear a lot of men with broken voices screaming the chorus back at the girls, which is that's amazing. It's definitely worth poking around for some of the um the live videos because yeah, you sort of realize both like who the who this um who the song is marketed towards an extent is like to some degree it's teenage girls but also it's like and teenage boys adolescent men yeah it is a it is a hook you can belt without needing to be into yeah so that you hear this 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 fan base which is significantly older and more male which clearly can't hit the same parts as the girls do um but still able to belt out the chorus line and belt out that hook because it's obviously incredibly catchy and incredibly based about hitting the rhythm. Um, mm-hmm. And speaking of that rhythm, I feel like that kick drum deserves a special mention. I know you love that kick drum. That kick drum is doing a lot of work. I love that kick drum. So, so I want to preface this by saying. The reason why I've been making all of these heartbeat comparisons to BPM this whole way through is because that's what the kick drum is. It's exactly what that kick drum is doing. Um, because it it's it forms that kind of like rhythmic backbone. Um, and you can probably speak more to like exactly which beats it's yeah, on. It's it's like it's the pattern isn't horrendously complex. Um, yeah, it's it's just kick snare kick snare. It's 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 kick snare kick snare for for one bar, and then the second time you get it in the sequence, it's a two bar sequence mm-hmm. for for the percussion, and the second time the final kick is just pushed up slightly slightly ahead of itself. Um, it's pushed onto the end of two rather than yes. Uh, if you will allow me to. Yeah, to imitate it, it goes boom, da, boom, da, boom, da, boom, da. You can, of course, just substitute that with what the song actually does. <laughs> or you can leave in my pretending to be a drum. Uh, pretending to be a drum is fun. Pretend to, it's, pretend to be a drum is a lot of fun. Everyone needs to pretend to be a drum sometimes. Um, yeah. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a drum, a mommy. Drum. <laughs> um, but yeah, it means you get the... Um, you get that sonic effect of that anticipation that it puts a gap in there. It puts the the heartbeat flutter in, which is incredibly simple and not exactly out the realms of things that other tracks do, but in a... Yeah, I, I want to mention the like kick, kick drum on one and three, that like deep drum note, and then the snare on two and four is like the world's most basic drum line. It is, and like, just it's one of the very first things you will learn and or hear. And it's utterly uh. ubiquitous, and it's G's just got the insight to be like, we could keep it on this incredibly relentless, incredibly basic pattern, but both like there's always the functional aspect of like you got to keep it um, rhythmically interesting. You can't just keep like pounding on the same thing over and over again. 
But the way he does it, does it by inserting that sort of step of like that, like lurch, that forward anticipation and a gap afterwards, which sort of like you get more of that like heart flutter effect as well as the sort of push and pull between one bar to the next. One bar, one bar drives forwards and the other one catches and trips over itself. I love it because it is your, your, that kick drum, if that's a heartbeat of the song, right? It's the backbone. It literally skips a beat. Which works so well, but like, A, as you say, rhythmic interest, right? It's something just a little bit unpredictable that stops you from succumbing to the sugar rush and subsequent crash. But it's also such a good metaphor for what the song is about, right? That kind of fluttering feeling when you have a first crush, the feeling of your heart skipping a beat, that's what the rhythm's doing. Entirely. It's so good. It's so good. I love that drum. Mm. Um, I also want to give a shout out to the to the amount of splashy um, hi-hats that are just chucked in that like mm. fill the top of the track out with white noise and hiss and crashy crashy like bounciness all over the place um, it's just very fun to hear Again, it's the sort of thing that we'd never expect production to allow this much mess in in more recent uh, iterations. And it's just very fun to find something that is unashamedly full of mess and full of frantic noise. Um, which is Which makes for a brilliant contrast when you hit that bridge section yeah. where everything just drops out. It becomes this echoey, expansive space. That drum, when you hear it, sounds like it's echoing through this vast room which is again remarkable because like i said this is a 200 bpm track there shouldn't be space to echo in a 200 bpm track and somehow just by contrast just by the drastic contrast to the um to the section surrounding it the the um the the bridge sounds utterly cavernous now's the time to just sort of like do the final little rug pull which is this is the brightest track that i've ever heard that's in a minor key (laughs) yeah um the minor key is like the broad super simplistic way of describing so the major majors are happy and minors are sad yeah that's that's the way you get like if you play some major chords and then some minor chords it's the major ones like and the minor is like, oh. You know what? I'm I'm probably gonna include some obnoxious major and minor triads just to like show the effect of. Yeah. And then I'll play a C sharp minor chord, and then I'll just play straight into G. And you'll be able to hear. G's in C sharp minor. G has an incredibly simple four chord sequence. Um, uh, six, four, five, one. Um, six major, four minor, five minor, one minor. Which is 
entirely diatonic. Diatonic being a fancy word for when you pick a key, you you um, stick to playing notes that are entirely within the key. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just kind of remarkable how much it... Um, it really is in a minor tonality and it just doesn't feel that way. All the other messaging is telling you about brightness and about like, um, like that urgency and that pace so that it doesn't come off as droopy or sad in any way. And I've been struggling to figure out how to, how to like, what does it mean that the tracks in minor? And I don't think it means anything inherently. It's just a a weird contributing fact to a thing that like, if this was in major, you'd probably hear it starkly as overwhelmingly saccharine. And this is a way of like... Right. The, the, the minor key here is the equivalent of that pinch of sh- salt you put on top of chocolate chip cookies to make them better. Yep. Yep. It's basically that. Right. That like with some semblance of balance and some semblance of like co- internal coherence of, rather than just relentless majorness. Um. It, it finds a way of like settling. It finds a way that this is a track that you can end up having on repeat because it is horrendously bright and shiny, but it doesn't have the, um, it doesn't cloy in the same way that other tracks of its kind might. And there are other tracks that I would say f- try to follow in G's mold and have just like unthinkingly, unthinkingly parroted the, the form of G slapped some bright shiny major chords on top of it and found they've got a track that's unworkably bright that's unworkably saccharine um i do just want to point out towards one little sort of um harmonic trick that it pulls which is um probably best heard in the intro um that the when it returns, the chord sequence returns on the um, uh, fourth. Uh, the fourth chord in the sequence is the root chord, which is C sharp minor. Um, and instead of just playing C sharp minor, both to turn around to get back into the next part of the chord sequence, and to just sort of introduce a sort of like a low key voice melody within the the backing part part itself, there's a, a tension note, a sort of added note onto the chord which gently falls from the fourth, you call it a C, um, C sharp minor 11, then onto mm-hmm. the minor third, and then onto the, onto the second or ninth, so that you just get a sort, of, a sort of progression, that tension progresses downwards and anticipates the chords changing to the, to the mm-hmm. sixth, and means you'd only spend a very short, you spend a beat and a half sitting on the actual minor chords um, a beat and a half on a 200 BPM song. Yeah, where that's all the time you're spending in the root keys minor, um, where either side of it, you've got the voices leading you to other places that the, it lands on a C sharp minor 11, which just sounds different. It sounds brighter and more expansive, even while being minor. And by using that voice leading, by using that progression of that tension down the scale, it can stay in minor it can stay exactly where it is it just um masks the fact that it doesn't need to dwell on that root minor and keeps it bright and keeps it moving and pushes the harmony along in a way that seems really effortless but that could have become really stodgy if or or maybe even have thrown off that really impressive balance between the relentless brightness and the sort of like 
comfort and darkness of the harmony if it was like hammering on a minor chord. And I thought that was one of the most like subtle and remarkable little bits of songwriting in this, uh, in this um, song. my brain that whole time you've been talking trying to be like it's it's it it is like the difference between someone handing you a drink and somebody like flaring while handing you a drink <laughs> right like this is the this is the like sick bottle twirl double flip and then your drink comes in set on fire and then they extinguish it it's still a drink but it pulled it off with style it pulled it off with style I had some high dive metaphors going on in my brain as well, but that didn't work quite as well. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where, like, functionally, there's nothing added by these tensions moving down the down in the sequence through, through the um through from fourth to minor third to second. But what it does do is just it adds a grace and emotion to this that makes it far more palatable and very very easy to listen to over and over again. It's um, one of those chord sequences that's incredibly happy to stay in rep- re- repetition, um, that it very naturally leads back in on itself. Mm. And that a big part of that is the voice leading that gets done on that root chord, which I think is just, it's just really impressive to hear it done. And to repeat, this is happening at 200 BPM. This is happening at a speed where everything just got mashed together because you're going so fast. Yeah, it sort of means you don't ever really register these as individual chords. You just sort of hear a a vague progression of um, what sounds like a counterpoint melody. Just sounds like something in the chords is like progressing downwards in a way that's maybe a bit more artful than if you just slammed on the relevant triads. Right. It's like it's it's a thing of where it's breezing past so fast that it's it gives you an impression, um, which is what I find incredible. Like it's doing a lot of work, and it's we've talked for so long about this. It's doing a lot of really subtly interesting and complicated things. But whoever wrote this, and they are a genius. Uh, and I just searched, and it turns out they wrote "Love Forever" featuring Grimes for Luna. <laughs> that. They're doing a lot of complicated work at such a high speed that you aren't sitting there going, oh, they're so clever. You're left with the impression, right? You're left with the emotion and the feeling that all of these little tricks give you. And I think that's part of why it's such such an evergreen track. You're not sitting there, I mean, unless you're us, you're not sitting there for ooh, an hour going, oh, this is so smart. You... In, in one sense, like, yeah, it, it there is enough here. There's enough depth to it, ironically for being, quote-unquote, shallow, that you can sit there and you can pick it apart and it's very satisfying to do it. But it's also very approachable because it's going so fast. You're not... Your brain is not sitting there, like, trying to reconcile, okay, it's happy, but it's in a key that's supposed to be... that we culturally associate with sad things. You know, it's got this on kind of on the dot beat but then sometimes it skips a bit no it's happening so fast you're not really you're not fixating on those things you're just left with the feeling that it hits you and then it kind of breezes right past you and it just takes you along for this wonderful joyous riotous ride 
So yeah, to sum up, G is sort of an archetype for how we sort of conceive of K-pop working. Yeah. Um, it's meticulously crafted, but um, it's done in service of a pretty singular purpose, um, covering literally everything from like makeup and wardrobe, set design, marketing, choreography, through to um, production and songwriting and vocal performance that is trying to be sufficiently coherent to nail a particular concept. Concept being a sort of K-pop industry term of art to, to describe the like combined aesthetic and narrative pop cultural like demographic targeting um, sort of or unexpected or rub very firmly against cultural signifiers that we're very used to in, way, in ways you get like dramatic contrast and dramatic um, juxtaposition and sometimes like weird unearthly things that we'd never expect to find in pop music um yeah the idea of this sort of holistic approach is like entirely pioneered by sm entertainment who is the big behemoth of the k-pop music industry and the uh, sort of like progenitor of this modern style of k-pop in a sense um which cards the on mask- the table we are very fond of yeah absolutely so it does color a little bit of what we listen to. Yeah, no, entirely. And I think part of the part of the enterprise of this is going to be not just to self-justify, to, but just to justify more generally, like how stuff that is given the cultural reverence that it is um, has earned that re- re- uh, reverence, but also that like we uh, feel very comfortable making some sense of judgment about why we want to listen to some stuff and don't really care as much about others. Or we find real value or real intrigue about some things and less about others. And the, mm-hmm. the, the archetype for there's more going on than you think is set in this SM entertainment mold of hyper-slick, mass-consumable, mass-marketed, precisely engineered pop music with a full understanding of the sort of target position of the audience and the means by which they're going to activate and target all of those, um, all of those emotional sentiments and uh, cultural resonances. And yeah, this is the starting point. This is the starting point of something beautiful and complicated and messy, but just a lot of fun. Just a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Stan Luna. <laughs> Stan Ontology. <laughs> you, you came up with that and I will never let you forget. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Was it, I've, it was one of I've us. Gotta live, I've got I've to live with this one, frankly. Uh, this has been oh. the first episode of Stan Ontology, uh, a horrendously nerdy K-pop podcast by me, uh, Michael yeah. slash Regression, and Claudia. And by me. Yep. Guilty as charged. <laughs> Um, we'll hopefully be back soon with yet more stuff. We've got a lot planned and excited to bring it all to you. It's been very fun to put this together. Yeah. yeah. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go give myself a sugar rush by listening to Jimmy again. <laughs> Good luck with that. I hope you come down in a sensible and safe environment. <laughs> in time for the next recording. Wonderful. Wonderful.